0: WTTM 119
1: Hello Danny Come Come listen listen to A Window to
2: to the the magic. Magic
3: Come, Come listen, listen to a window to, window to the magic the with us, Danny. You can, can surround yourself with the magic forever. And ever.
2: And ever. And ever. Tony. I'm scared. Remember what Mr. Barry said. It's just a podcast, Danny. It isn't real. Red rum. Red rum.
0: Welcome to A Window to the Magic. My name is Paul, and as always, I will be your guide through the wonderful world of Disney's sound experiences. This show is a weekly trip into the world of the Disney theme parks and resorts, and this is the place where you get to use your ears to surround yourself with the magic. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to episode number 119 of A Window to the Magic. Uh, you're probably wondering why Patrick's not here. Well, you see, guys, Patrick came down with. um, uh, Well, he's sick. Patrick's like really sick. Um, So little I'm pigs, presenting the. Little pigs, let me come in, not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff. So, so I'm and presenting the Halloween show this and year. You blow. see. We you sat down no and sin. tried to come up with... Whoa! Patrick, what are you doing? What? Where'd you get that axe? Help! All you don't Somebody call 911!
4: Here's
0: Patrick! I am so dead.
4: Hey, everyone. Now that Paul's been disposed of, I can wish you all a very happy Halloween. Before we get started, I'd like to announce the winners of this month's three contests. First was the hunt for the 13 ghosts. The only person to successfully locate all 13 was Adam Sanchez. Congratulations, Adam. The winner of the Week 2 contest, the Disney Park Audio Jumble, is Tim Halber. Tim wrote in, Hi Patrick, well you got my curiosity piqued with this one, and it was a major challenge to sift through four layers of audio. After multiple listens and different sets of headphones, I'm finally confident with my entry. I believe the four attractions are Pirates of the Caribbean, America Sings, Journey into Imagination, and Star Tours. I got Pirates right off, followed by Journey into Imagination with the one little spark right at the end. Changing headphones allowed me to hear the America Sings track, and then finally, after almost believing that I heard the India section of It's a Small World in there, the Star Tours narration finally came clear. Did I win? I'm very curious to learn what the prize is. Keep up the great work, this was loads of fun. Glad you enjoyed it, Tim, and just for the curious out there, here's the audio jumble.
5: No. Up there, the is still hot hot
4: and here are the four clips broken up. Yo-ho,
5: yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We pillage, we plunder, we rifle and oh, loot. Drink up, me-hatties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot. Drink up, me-hatties, me yo.
1: Yankee Doodle went the town a-riding on a pony Stuck a feather in his hat and called it
4: macaroni Yankee Doodle keep it up, Yankee Doodle dandy Mind the music and the step and with the girls be handy <laughs>
5: Star Tours introduces the perfect getaway vacation with exclusive tour packages to Hoth. Now you can ski the most incredible slopes in the galaxy, or if you prefer, explore beautiful and mysterious ice caverns and the famed Echo Base.
4: Sadly, the third contest, the Identify the Missing Words from the Ten Photos game, didn't ever produce a winner. There were quite a few people that came close, but no cigar so that game's prize will be held over for a later contest. Make sure you two email in your mailing addresses so I can get your prizes sent out. Well, it's the Halloween show. So, what do I have for you this year? Three separate stories. The first is called The Ghostbusters in the Haunted Mansion. Enjoy! What's the job this time? Our dream job. How is it a dream job?
6: The guy that called said that this house has 999
4: ghosts. 999? How in the heck does he know that this place has 999 ghosts? I don't know. I didn't ask.
6: All I know is that if we drag this thing out and only catch, like, one ghost a day, we're gonna be on Easy Street for almost three years. Fair
4: enough. Hey, are we there yet, guys? Are we there yet? Guys? Why do you have to tell the new guy he could come? I don't want to train this guy. He's an idiot. He doesn't seem as stupid as the last guy. The last guy got fried goofing around with a proton pack. Who plays around with an unlicensed nuclear accelerator?
6: Wait, what happened? Do you still think it was a bad idea to get these trainees to sign safety waivers? Not anymore. Um... Is that what I signed? You guys didn't tell me what I was signing. Don't worry, you'll be fine.
4: All right, we're here. Let's try to look professional this time.
6: There's a guy dressed like a butler. Hey guys, welcome to the Haunted Mansion. Hey, aren't you television's Neil Patrick Harris? Yes, I am, but I work at Disneyland on the weekends. Come on guys, let's go.
4: Uh, the PKE meter's going nuts. There's some serious activity in this house. You do recall me mentioning the
6: 999 ghosts, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, check it out, a
5: portrait gallery. Welcome. What the heck was that? I am your host. Your ghost host.
6: (laughs) Hey, uh, the wall just closed behind us. Uh, It's cool. There should be another way
5: out. What other way?
4: This chamber has no windows and no doors.
5: This chamber has no windows and no doors. I just said that. Which offers you this chilling challenge. To find a way out. (laughs) Any ideas
6: how we get out of here? Well, there's always my way...
4: I can't believe you just blew up that wall!
6: Hey, you heard what he said. He challenged us to find a way out. Always up for a challenge. I'd say that's Ghostbusters 1, disembodied voice
4: 0. That reminds me. How in the heck do we go about catching a disembodied voice? You got me.
5: And ghoulies from
2: last Halloween. Awaken the spirits with your tambourine.
4: Now I've seen everything. A
6: talking head in a floating ball? How do we even classify that? I don't know, just shoot. <laughs>
4: She's moving way too fast.
6: Ow! (laughs) She threw a horn at me. What the heck? Maybe she doesn't like us shooting at her. Oh, really? Let's see how she likes this.
3: You missed again.
6: You don't say. Ow! Tambourine this time. I know it was a tambourine. I saw it right before it hit me in the face. All right, that's it.
4: Ow! Come on, let's go. Shouldn't we help? Nah, this is between the two of them. Do you think he'll catch her? She's bound to run out of instruments eventually. Ow! <laughs> Whoa! This room is
5: crawling
4: with ghosts! They're not crawling. They seem to be having a party. Look, there's a bunch dancing over there. It's a figure of speech. Oh. We don't have anywhere near enough traps for this many ghosts. Just go over there to those dancing ghosts and take some readings. We need to classify the apparitions so we have a better idea of what we're dealing with here. Okay. What an idiot! Uh,
6: pardon me? Yes? May I cut in?
0: Why, certainly.
6: So, what's a nice ghost like you doing in a place like this?
2: It's a long story.
4: Uh, Hey, Ryan. So, you catch the floating head? She threw a harp
6: at me. I'll take that as a no. You think? What's Austin doing over there?
4: He appears to be dancing with a ghost. You're very light on your feet.
7: I'm kind of floating.
6: Hey, Twinkle Toes, can we move along? Gotta go. Hey guys, there's a lot of hot chicks in here. We gotta keep them out of the attic. Uh, yeah, (laughs) good idea.
5: Hey, it's the disembodied voice again. We have 999 happy haunts here. But there's room for a thousand.
6: He's in here. I can hear him. Yeah, but where? I don't know. Everyone just shoot in a different direction. One of us is bound to get lucky. You mean we might actually catch him before we reduce this house to dust? Just shut up and shoot!
4: I think I got him! Open the trap! How do you know? Trap!
6: Did we get him? I didn't see anything go in. Well, how do we know if he's in there or not? I don't know. Why don't you tap on the trap and see if he answers. Hello? Anyone in there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's empty. Hey, do you guys hear that? What is that? Sounds like... singing. It's coming from outside.
4: I was okay with the talking floating head. I was a little creeped out by the ghost party. Now I'm freaking out. It's a graveyard full of stinging ghosts. What?
6: We've seen some pretty weird things.
4: Singing ghosts?
6: You've got a point.
4: Let's get out of here.
5: We find it delightfully unlivable here in this ghostly retreat. Ah, oh, great.
6: Now he's back. Just ignore him. I want to get out of here. Hey guys, look at this. This crypt has a curtain instead of a door. Let's check it out. And there's a light coming from inside.
5: Ah, there you are. And just in time, there's a little matter I forgot to mention.
6: Beware of hitchhiking ghosts. They have selected you to fill our quota, and they'll haunt you until you return. Neil Patrick Harris? What are you doing? I've been a Disney fan all my life. And I just wanted to be the ghost host in the haunted mansion. And I would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for you
7: meddling
2: Ghostbusters.
4: Neil.
6: <laughs>
7: <laughs>
4: okay, wait. So Neil Patrick Harris has been the disembodied voice the whole time? What about the other 998 ghosts? Let's get to work, guys. Ghostbusters! If something strange.
5: Who you gonna call Ghostbusters something weird And it don't look good Who you gonna
4: call Our second offering this evening is the tale of the haunted mansion. For years now, fans have tried to give the mansion a backstory. Cast members at Walt Disney World wrote individual backstories for many of the ghosts in the attraction. Disney released the Haunted Mansion movie, which, in its own right, is a backstory. Constance, the Black Widow Bride, brought a brand new story into the mansion. Doombuggies.com even offered a short backstory for the mansion. Personally, I'm a fan of those cast member written stories. I drew my inspiration from a handful of those stories, and with the help of Brian Summer, I feel like we can now present the definitive backstory of the mansion and its residents. I'll warn you, this one's not for the faint of heart.
7: The shadows grow long as the mournful winds chill in reverence to the dying of summer. The rustling leaves and increasing darkness herald the arrival of Halloween. Quickly now, it is time to gather your loved ones close in a familiar and comforting setting. For no doubt you will need the strength and support of one another as we venture forth. Now... Since you are all huddled together in a place of warmth and safety, I wish to pose a question. When does a house become a home? Is it merely the presence of its occupants? Or is it the love of family that transforms the wood and brick into a nurturing sanctuary? A shelter from the cold and harsh realities of the outside world. A place we long for when we are far away. So much a part of who we are that we could scarcely survive without it. But what of the houses that never become homes? What is it that plagues them? What? unseen force confines them to a state of cold, dark loneliness. Despair and death are its occupants, its furnishings sorrow and grief. We are all well aware of one such home, are we not? Its name is synonymous with the eternal darkness contained within its wretched walls. A more appropriate name has never been bestowed. The Haunted Mansion. And it is truly just that. The tragic past of this doomed structure is steeped in mystery. Few know the full details of how it came to be, but tonight you will join those ranks. Tonight you will learn how the wish of one man to provide a loving home for his family became the nightmare which destroyed one generation after the next for anyone taking up residence within these cursed walls sealed their fate forevermore. To learn of the mansion's birth, we must travel back many, many years. Ronald Stevens, the powerful and wealthy owner of a shipping company, has just arrived in America from England. With aspirations of expanding his empire, Stevens has brought his family to Louisiana, a major shipping influence in the New World. This is where Stevens will make his home. Wishing to protect his family from the undesirable effects of the port cities, Ronald settles in a small town deep within Cajun country a quaint location known as Ville de la Morte. He chose a site high on a hilltop overlooking the nearby river. While Ronald felt the location was ideal for his future home, the local residents knew a disturbing fact. The site was an Indian burial ground. This place is cursed, Mr. Stevens. Poppycock!
4: This is my land. This is where my home will stand.
7: Despite constant warnings from the townspeople, Stevens remained firm that his home would be built on the site. From the very beginning, the mansion's construction was plagued by freak accidents. No less than a dozen men lost their lives during the earliest stages of the home's construction. For nearly a year, Ronald was unable to find any man either brave or stupid enough to work on the home. Just when Ronald had lost all hope that the home would ever be complete, he received a letter from his brothers Fred and Marcus.
6: Dear brother, we received your letter in regards to your hardship in completing your home. We have booked passage aboard the Grand Ship Columbia, and will be arriving soon. On our lives, your home will be complete. The Stevens brothers will prevail.
7: The happiness that Ronald felt upon his brother's arrival was sadly short-lived. Marcus was on the upper level of the structure, laying the bricks that would form the second story's outer walls. Tripping over a loose board... Oops! Oops! Marcus sent several bricks tumbling down toward the ground. This would not have been a problem had Fred not been walking just underneath. Fred was struck in the head by one of the heavy falling bricks, killing him instantly. Fred, you alright? Fred? Oh no, what have I done? Over the next few years, The two remaining brothers completed the mansion. Grief-stricken over the loss of their younger sibling, Ronald and Marcus only emerged from the mansion to travel into the nearby town for supplies. They never spoke to anyone. Ronald slowly lost his mind and spent his time carving his name backwards onto dozens of gravestones. Marcus returned home one afternoon to find his brother perched atop a keg of gunpowder. The lighted fuse leading into the deadly barrel was hissing away. Ronald, what are you doing? Why, I'm going out with a bang, dear brother. In a panic, Marcus ran from the house, fleeing for his very life. Seconds later, an explosion rocked the hilltop mansion destroying a large section of the home. Marcus had his brother's strange gravestones scattered throughout the mansion's grounds, each of them marking the final resting place of that which was left of dear Ronald. Marcus spent several years repairing the damaged mansion and so it was that the last remaining Stevens brother completed repairs on the mansion. Then, as his final deed, he sealed himself into a brick tomb in the adjacent graveyard. The Stevens brothers were no more. Over the years, the home passed from family to family. In its many reincarnations, the mansion was used for a myriad of purposes, such as a military barracks and a pirate's hangout. Those buried in the mansion's graveyard are merely a sample of those souls that have been claimed by the house. By 1914, a new family had moved into the mansion, This family's name would have the greatest impact upon the bloody history of this sorrowful place. The mansion's newest owner would be George Gracie Senior. A shrewd yet questionable businessman, Gracie owned several textile mills which employed many of the local residents. Gracie was not known for his compassion or care for his employees. Profits were Gracie's driving force, and he got what he wanted. The Gracies, George, his lovely bride Mary, and their young son George Jr. took up residence in the mansion, knowing nothing of its past. What do you think of your new home?
2: Oh George, it's just lovely. We're going to be so happy here.
7: Happy indeed. For some years later, the beautiful Mary became aware of her husband's marital indiscretions. In a fit of rage, Mary picked up an axe.
4: Mary, put that axe away this instant.
2: Oh, I'll put it away, just as soon as I've finished with you.
7: And placed it firmly into her husband's skull.
2: What have I done?
7: Fearing she would be arrested for her husband's murder, she fled the mansion by carriage. Out onto the main driveway of the home, her carriage careened wildly. Three unlucky souls found themselves in the wrong place at a very deadly time.
5: Look there, Ezra. That carriage seems to be out of control. Do you suppose we should try and stop it, Phineas? It would be the right thing to do, and we may get a ride out of it, eh? That's very true, Gus.
7: In her haste to escape the horrific scene that her very own hands had caused, Mary plowed through the mansion's main gate and ran over the three men that were innocently hitchhiking on the boulevard. Mary disappeared into the city, never looking back with his father's gruesome murder and mother's unexplained disappearance, George Gracie Jr. inherited the mansion. Lonely for the presence of family, George moved several of his widowed aunts into the home. Elma, who had become quite an artist, took to painting portraits of the mansion's residents and guests. And then there was great Aunt Victoria who was well known for her friendliness and outgoing personality. She loved to socialize. The mansion came to life once again, as Victoria hosted one party after the next. She needed no reason nor holiday.
1: George, I hope you don't mind. I've invited several hundred of my closest friends to a bit of a housewarming party in honor of Elma and myself.
7: Obsessed with getting to know his father even after death, Master Gracie sought out the occult as a conduit of communication. While seeking out psychic mediums at a carnival, he met a tightrope walker by the name of Lillian O'Malley.
5: Excuse me, miss?
1: Oh, hello.
5: You were quite wonderful.
1: Thank you, mister?
7: Gracie. George Gracie. The two quickly fell in love and were married. Three months later, while on a trip to New Orleans, George met the medium he had been searching for. With the hope of finally reaching his father in the afterlife, he brought Madame Leota back to the mansion. Together they held nightly seances. On October 1st, 1919, Madame Leota gave birth to a daughter. She named the child Little Leota. The madam never revealed the name of the father, but it is said whenever Little Leota spoke, Master Gracie always fell silent. On November 5th of the same year, Victoria was throwing herself a birthday party in the mansion's ballroom. That same night, Madame Leota was attempting to conduct a seance. Enraged by the noise and what she felt were intolerable interruptions, Leota burst into the ballroom.
2: I will not stand for any more of this noise. Mark my words. Thirteen years from today, you
7: all shall die.
1: Oh, go away and play with your crystal ball.
7: Of course, no one took the curse seriously, and they continued with their party. Always looking for a reason to entertain on her own behalf, Victoria seized the opportunity and threw herself a grand birthday party every November 5th. The 13th gathering was a huge costume party in the ballroom. Party guests enjoyed dancing as the pipe organ played and admired each other's costumes. The thirsty guests drank pot after pot of tea, remarking on its unusual flavor. Suddenly, just before midnight, all the guests fell ill. By the time medical help arrived, everyone at the tea party was dead. Due to their fashionably late arrival, the Gracie household had been spared. The well water that had been used to make the tea proved to be contaminated. Victoria had retired early from her own party and was found dead in her chambers with a smile on her face. At a very young age, Little Leota began helping her mother in the seance circle and would always see the departing guests to the door, inviting them to return soon.
1: Hurry back! Hurry back!
7: Fascinated with death, Little Leota was instrumental in convincing the townspeople to hold their funerals in the mansion's conservatory. However, Leota was indeed a practical joker. She would nail the coffin lid shut before the viewing or replace the flowers with dead ones. Her favorite trick was to lock all the guest room doors in the middle of the night and then run down the corridor knocking on each of them. One cold night in April of 1936 Little Leota summoned her personal maid, Prudence. Prudence, come here at once! Yes, Mistress Leota. I've received some sympathetic vibrations from downstairs, and I'm just not sure what may be causing
2: it. Would you please go see what it is? Oh, Miss, I'm sure it's nothing.
7: The poor housemaid was visibly frightened, giving Leota even more incentive to send her downstairs. Leota ordered her to investigate. Prudence wandered the halls. The flickering candles, her only source of light in the dark house. As she walked down the long dark hall, one of the doors swung open. Poor Prudence was so terrified by this that she collapsed. By the next day, her hair had turned completely white and by December of the same year, the poor girl had aged so unnaturally, one could hardly recognize her. She passed away shortly after, never discovering that it was only little Leota trying to frighten her on that fateful April night. As previously mentioned, just a short time after Lillian and George had been married, Madame Leota was brought into the Gracie household. This, combined with the nightly seances held by George and Leota, and the disconcerting arrival of Leota's daughter, had caused Lillian much concern. She was often neglected by her husband, and little Leota and the Madame plagued her with nasty pranks. This caused Lillian to slip further and further away from reality, and into a deep melancholy. One night, in 1936, at a small party, Madame Leota urged Lillian to perform her old tightrope act. But this time, she was to walk the rope across the river.
1: Oh, Leota, do you really think everyone would enjoy it?
2: I have a feeling it will be the highlight of their entire
7: evening. Craving the attention and delighted to be wanted, Lillian agreed. The crowd gathered at the river's edge as Lillian ventured out onto the rope. It was the only thing between her and the murky swamp waters below. To her dismay the rope began to unravel when she was only halfway across. Poor Lillian. As the rope gave way, she fell to her death into the waiting jaws of an alligator below. A short time later, Emily Cavanaugh was attending her parents' funeral in the mansion's conservatory. There she met George. Having just lost his wife, George felt a connection to the sad girl who was mourning the passing of her father. George was prepared to offer her consolation and guidance. Emily, being the impressionable girl of only 16 years, fell in love with the authoritative figure of the master, and later, when he proposed marriage, she accepted. In 1941, just a few days prior to the wedding, George heard the voices of Emily and another man in the attic. As she exited through a door on the opposite side of the room, George, in a jealous rage, flew into the attic and decapitated the man with an axe. Gracie never had the chance to find out that the man was merely a runner from the bridal shop bringing a last-minute selection of hats and veils for Emily to sample. His body was quickly removed and buried in the mansion's graveyard. He was buried with the hat box that he was holding. Just as George rushed in, they were unable to pry it from his fingers. The trouble for Emily herself began on the honeymoon at the Gracie Mansion. Being young, Emily was still playful and decided to play hide-and-seek with her new groom. So eager was she to begin this honeymoon game that she didn't even wait to change out of her wedding gown. Hello, my dear.
2: Whatever are you doing?
1: Oh, hello, Leota. I'm hiding from George. Can you help me?
2: Of course, my dear. Why not hide in the attic? I believe I saw a large, empty trunk in there. Oh, thank you, madam. I shall never forget this.
7: I'm quite sure you won't, my dear. Emily entered the attic, and hearing George calling her, she quickly hid in the large sea trunk, closing the lid behind her. The trunk was uncomfortable and stuffy, and when she tried to push open the lid, she found that it was stuck.
2: Stuck. Help.
7: Now trapped in this confining space, the young bride suffocated.
2: Help me! Someone let me out. I can't breathe. Help. Help.
7: Meanwhile, little Leoda had acquired an insatiable appetite for men. She would engage in affairs with any man that suited her fancy. She had relentlessly pursued the mansion's handyman, gardener, and liveryman. Fearing for their job should they become involved with her, each of the three men refused her advances. Incensed at being snubbed, she plotted against them. And on a stormy night in 1942, she sent them down to the river to investigate a strange noise.
2: You three go down to the river and see what's making that horrible sound.
7: But miss, I I don't hear a thing. Nor do I,
0: miss.
2: Are you calling me a liar?
0: No, ma'am. It's just that none of us
5: three have heard anything strange all evening.
2: Oh, you'll go. Or I'll see to it that the three of you are looking for different employment by morning.
7: Reluctantly, the men ventured out into the night at Leota's behest. It was dark and the men became disoriented and stumbled into quicksand.
4: It's quicksand!
7: In a panic, they climbed onto each other's shoulders in a futile effort to reach a swaying tree branch.
4: Grab that branch! I can't reach it.
7: Leota had followed the men outside to enjoy her handiwork. She chose a vantage point in a nearby tree to revel in their struggle. (laughs) But as she watched, Leota lost her grip and fell into the icy river. All four perished that night. The bodies of the men could not be found. However, when Leota's body was recovered several days later, it was discovered that she had inexplicably shriveled to the size of a doll. Through the years and many deaths in and around the mansion, George's Aunt Elma continued to paint portraits of the mansion's residents and guests. Unfortunately, as the years passed, the old woman became senile. The first sign that she had lost her sanity was her purchase of a large black raven from a traveling man in town. Elma called the bird Robert, the name of her long deceased husband. The only painting of Elma herself is a portrait she created of her and her husband years after he had died. Rumor has it, this portrait began as a painting her raven posed for. Late one night, Elma had presented George with his own portrait. It was based on what George had looked like in his younger days.
5: Georgie, my dear boy, I would like you to have this. Oh, thank you, Aunt. It's lovely. I shall hang it over the fireplace in the foyer. You were always my favorite nephew. You do remember, of course, that I'm your only nephew? Certainly. But that doesn't mean you can't be my favorite. Good night, George.
7: Good night, Elma. The nursemaid put Elma to bed and then left for the night. Around 11 o'clock, a scream came from Elma's room. As Master Gracie entered the room, he discovered that Elma was dead. Her withered hand pointing toward the windowsill where her raven was resting. Very little is known about the death of Madame Leota. What is known has been pieced together from the few entries that George made in his journal. By 1942, it seemed that Leota wanted to use the mansion as a portal into the afterlife. Leota wanted to commune with even more powerful spirits by bringing them over from the other side. I will not allow you to do this, Leota. This home has seen enough death. It has
5: taken my family, my friends, the two women I had ever truly loved.
2: You think this mansion took your wives from you? It was I that cut Lillian's tightrope. I was the one who locked Emily into that trunk.
5: You murdered them? But why?
2: They could never be deserving of your love because they could never understand your pain.
5: I understood your pain. You! You
7: are responsible for my pain. George, with vengeful blood coursing through his veins, charged at the Madam and strangled her to death with his own two hands. The next few days, he wandered the empty halls of his mansion, slipping further and further into his own depression. Finally, seeing no other way to end his suffering, George hung himself from the rafters in the attic. Everyone has been taken from me. I am trapped alone.
5: There is, of course, only one way out for me.
7: (laughs) For the next 20 years, the mansion stood empty, cold and alone. No one would go near it. It was a place of only death and suffering. In 1960, Walt Disney and several of his Imagineers had gone on a search for a house on which to base the exterior designs of a newly planned attraction for Disneyland. The attraction was to be called The Haunted Mansion. As soon as Walt saw the antebellum mansion, he fell in love with it.
5: Now look at this house. It's magnificent, don't you think? This what you want Disneyland's mansion to look like, boss? No, this is Disneyland's mansion.
3: Why don't you make the call? I'll pay cash. Whatever they're asking.
7: Walt quickly made plans for the entire structure to be dismantled, brought to Disneyland's newly constructed New Orleans Square, and rebuilt in exacting detail overlooking the rivers of America. He even insisted that the home's contents be carefully preserved inside.
6: Walt, the Omnimover system is ready to roll.
5: Oh boy, that's great. Something bothering you, Bob?
6: The boys and I have been
7: hearing that voice again.
6: Yeah, and Ziggy and me saw that crazy broad in the attic. Is
5: this true, Ziggy?
6: Yo!
7: Uh, Walt, while everyone else is coming clean... I think you should know that there are see through people dancing in the ballroom. And well, I. uh, You tell them, Bob. Yesterday, I had a three hour discussion with one of the marble busts out in the graveyard.
5: Well, looks like I got a little more than I paid for with this mansion.
7: Delighted at the thought of having real ghosts in his mansion, Walt stopped all plans for the installation of special effects or animatronic figures into the home. Okay, Walt. How do we handle
5: this? We'll uh, take care of the outside. Let the ghosts take care of the inside, all
7: right? The mansion opened three years later and guests to this day continue to report seeing ghosts and a raven all throughout the mansion. You are one of those guests, aren't you? Perhaps you thought these apparitions were manufactured, all smoke and mirrors, as it were. Well, perhaps the next time you venture into the environs of the mansion's walls, you will have a better understanding of the origins of its moldering sanctum. That is, of course, assuming that you will want to return. I wouldn't worry, though. After all, everyone says it's just make-believe. It couldn't be real. So go ahead, enjoy the mansion again. But wait. There, out of the corner of your eye, in that dark corner. Did you see something move? Was something there that hadn't been before? Just an image, a brief image? No, just a trick of the light. I'm sure that's all it was. After all, it's just make-believe.
3: Hello, everyone, and Happy Halloween. I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. We now come to the final act. Patrick was gracious enough to allow me to do a reading for you to finish up the show. This is a short story written in 1902 by W.W. Jacobs, but on a personal note, This is a story that is firmly rooted in my childhood. You see, my father used to read this story to the kids in the neighborhood right around Halloween time. And well, it scared the dickens out of us every single year. I also learned a lot about timing and delivery when my father would read this. He knew just when to pour on the suspense and when to keep you hanging on for the next sentence. So right now, I would like to take you back to turn of the century England in a small village where Mr. and Mrs. White live. Along with their son Herbert, they are about to have a visitor that will bring with him an exotic trinket from his trips abroad. No one in that small, quaint home will have any idea of the impact this mysterious item is about to have on them. So, Dad, this one's for you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I give you The Monkey's Paw. Without, the night was cold and wet. But in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn, and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess. The former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, put his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady, knitting placidly by the fire. "'Hark at the wind,' said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. "'I'm listening,' said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. "'Check.' "'I should hardly think he'll be coming tonight,' said his father, with his hand poised over the board. "'Mate,' replied the son. "'That's the worst of living so far out,' bawled Mr. White, with sudden and unlooked-for violence." "'Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. "'Pathways a bog, the, the road's a torrent. "'I don't know what people are thinking about. "'I suppose because only two houses on the road are let, they think it doesn't matter.' "'Never mind, dear,' said the wife soothingly. "'Perhaps you'll win the next one.' Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips. "'and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. "'There he is,' said Herbert White, "'as the gate banged loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. "'The man rose with hospitable haste, "'and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. "'The new arrival also condoled with himself, "'so that Mrs. White said, "'Tut, tut,' and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, "'followed by a tall, burly man, "'beady of eye and rubicund of visage.' Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The sergeant major shook hands and, taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contently while his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass his eyes got brighter and he began to talk. The little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of strange scenes and doughty deeds. "'of wars and plagues and strange peoples.' twenty-one years of it,' said Mr. White, "'nodding at his wife and son. "'When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. "'Now look at him.' "'He don't look to have taken much harm,' said Mrs. White politely. "'I'd like to go to India myself,' said the old man, "'just to look around a bit, you know.' "'Better where you are,' said the sergeant-major, shaking his head. "'He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again.' I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was it you started telling me about the other day, about a a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor, absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him. "'To look at,' said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket, "'it's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy.' He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. "'And what is there special about it?' inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it upon the table." It had a spell put on it by an old fakir, said the sergeant major, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it did so to their own sorrow. He put a spell on it, so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manner was so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter jarred somewhat. Well, why don't you have three, sir, said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him in the way that middle-aged is wont to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. And did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. And has anybody else wished? inquired the old lady. The first man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but... The third was for death. That's how I got the paw. His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. "'If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now then, Morris,' said the old man at last. "'What do you keep it for?' The soldier shook his head. "'Fancy, I suppose,' he said slowly. "'If you could have another three wishes,' said the old man, eyeing him keenly, "'would you have them?' "'I don't know,' said the other.' I don't know. He took the paw and, dangling it between his front finger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. If you don't want it, Morris, said the old man, give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire again, like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his new possession closely. "'How do you, uh, do it?' he inquired. "'Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud,' said the sergeant-major, "'but I warn you of the consequences.' "'Sounds like the Arabian Nights,' said Mrs. White, "'as she rose and began to set supper. "'Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me?' "'Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, "'and then all three burst into laughter "'as the sergeant-major, with a look of alarm on his face, "'caught him by the arm.' If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back into his pocket, and placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterwards the three sat, listening in an enthralled fashion, to a second installment of the soldiers' adventures in India. If the tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he has been telling us, said Herbert White, as the door closed behind their guest just in time for him to catch the last train. We shan't make much of it. "'Did you give him anything for it, Father?' inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. "A "'A trifle,' said he, coloring slightly. "'He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away.' ''Likely,'' said Herbert, with pretended horror. ''Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. Then you can't be henpecked." He darted around the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with a dish-towel. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. ''I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact,'' he said slowly. ''It seems to me I've got all that I want.'' If you only paid off the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you, said Herbert with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That will just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a sudden cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wish it, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son, as he picked it up and placed it on the table, and I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though, there's no harm done, but it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence unusual and depressing settled upon all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert, as he bade them good night, and something horrible squatting on top of the wardrobe watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, Herbert laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it had lacked on the previous night. "'and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard "'with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. "'I suppose all old soldiers are the same,' said Mrs. White. "'The idea of our listening to such nonsense. "'How could wishes be granted in these days? "'And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt you, father?' "'My drop on your head from the sky,' said the frivolous Herbert." Morris said the things happen so naturally, said the father, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert, as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it will turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed and followed him to the door, watched him down the road, and returning to the breakfast table was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor preventing her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant majors of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. "'Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home,' she said, as they sat at dinner. "'I dare say,' said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer, "'but for all that the thing moved in my hands, that I'll swear to.' You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There was no thought about it. I had just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection to the 200 pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it and then, with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White at the same moment placed her hands behind her and, hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. "'I was asked to call,' he said at last, and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers.' "'I come from Ma and Megan's,' the old lady started. "'Is anything the matter?' she said breathlessly. "'Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it?' "'Her husband interposed. "'There, there, mother,' he said hastily. "'Sit down and don't jump to conclusions.' "'You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir.' "'And he eyed the other wistfully. "'I'm sorry,' began the visitor. "'Is he hurt?' demanded the mother. "'The visitor bowed in assent. "'Badly hurt.' "'he said quietly, but he is not in any pain. "'Oh, thank God,' said the old woman, "'clasping her hands. "'Thank God for that. "'Thank—' "'She broke off suddenly "'as the sinister meaning of the assurance "'dawned upon her, "'and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears "'in the other's averted face. "'She caught her breath, "'and turning to her slower-witted husband, "'laid her trembling old hand upon his.' there was a long silence he was caught in the machinery said the visitor at length in a low voice caught in the machinery replied mr white in a dazed fashion yes he sat staring blankly out at the window and taking his wife's hand between his own pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly 40 years before "'He was the only one left to us,' he said, turning gently to the visitor. "'It is hard.' "'The other coughed and raised, walked slowly to the window. "'The firm wishes me to convey their sincerest sympathy to you on your great loss,' he said, "'without looking around. "'I I beg that you understand I am only their servant and merely obeying orders.' "'There was no reply.' The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant-major might have carried into his first action. "'I was to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility,' continued the other. "'They admit no liability at all, but in consideration for your son's service, "'they wish to present you with a certain sum of compensation.' Mr. White dropped his wife's hand and, rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds was the answer. Unconsciously, his wife shrieked. The old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. In the huge new cemetery some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to a house steeped in shadow and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed an expectation gave way to resignation the hopeless resignation of the old sometimes miscalled apathy sometimes they hardly exchanged a word for now there was nothing to talk about and their days were long to weariness it was about a week after that that the old man waking suddenly in the night stretched out his hand and found himself alone the room was in darkness "'and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. "'He raised himself in bed and listened. "'Come back,' he said tenderly. "'You will be cold.' "'It is cold for my son,' said the old woman, "'and wept afresh. "'The sound of her sobs died away on his ears. "'The bed was warm and his eyes were heavy with sleep. "'He dozed fitfully and then slept "'until a wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start.' "'The paw!' she cried wildly. "'The monkey's paw!' "'He started up in alarm. "'Where? Uh, "'What is it? "'What's the matter?' "'She came stumbling across the room toward him. "'I want it,' she said quietly. "'You've not destroyed it.' "'It's in the parlor on the bracket,' he replied, marveling. "'Why?' "'She cried and laughed together and bending over, kissed his cheek. "'I only just thought of it,' she said hysterically. "'Why didn't I think of it before? "'Why didn't you think of it?' "'Think of what?' he questioned.' ''The other two wishes,'' she replied rapidly. ''We've had only one.'' ''Was that not enough?'' he demanded fiercely. ''No,'' she cried triumphantly. ''We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly, and wish for our boy alive again.'' The man sat up in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. ''Good God, are you mad?'' he cried aghast. ''Get it,'' she panted. ''Get it quickly, and wish, ''Oh, my boy, my boy!'' Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go and get it and wish, cried the old woman, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides, he... I would not tell you else, but... I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too horrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, and dragged him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child that I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him. He caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way around the table, and groping along the wall found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room, It was white and expectant, and to his fear seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. "'Wish!' she cried in a strong voice. "'It is foolish and wicked,' he faltered. "'Wish!' repeated his wife. He raised his hand. "'I wish my son alive again!' The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. He then sank trembling into a chair as the old woman with burning eyes walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burnt below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute or two afterwards the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but both lay silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked and a squeaky mouse scurried through the wall. The darkness was oppressive. And after lying for some time, screwing up his courage, the husband took the box of matches and, striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at the same moment a knock, so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded throughout the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. A, 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 a rat, said the old man in a shaking tone. A, a rat, I, I, it passed me on the stairs. His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounding through the house. "'It is Herbert!' she screamed. "'It is Herbert!' She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It is my boy! It is Herbert!' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot it was two miles away! What are you holding me for? Let go! I must open the door!' "'For God's sake, don't let it in!' cried the old man, trembling. "'You're afraid of your own son?' she cried, struggling. "'Let me go! I'm coming, Herbert! I'm coming!' There was another knock and another. The old woman with a sudden wrench broke free and ran from the room, her husband following to the landing and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bottom bolt draw slowly and swiftly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice straining and panting. The bolt, she cried loudly, come down, I can't reach it. But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw, if he could only find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated throughout the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came back slowly, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly. Although the echoes of it were still in the house, he heard the chair draw back and the door open. A cold rush of air ran up the staircase, and a long, low wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him courage to run down to her side, and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet, and deserted road.
4: I'd like to thank all the talented folks that lent us their voices for this year's Halloween show. Ricky Briganti from Inside the Magic, Bonnie Kenderdine and Clinton Alverd from the Comedy Forecast, Jeff Roney from Roney Zone Radio, Gary Chambers from the Mouse Lounge Podcast, Bob and Sandy Summer, my daughter Hope, son Stewie, and wife Faith. My parents, Stephanie and Mike, my sisters, Heather and Holly, Rick Young, Becky Kaufman, Paul Berry, Terry Woodard, Susie and Stephanie Ferrer, my two favorite Ghostbusters, Austin Young and Ryan McKinley, voice guy extraordinaire, Brian Summer, and last but certainly not least, Corey Burton, Pete Renaday, and Neil Patrick Harris. I'd like to thank you all for listening to A Window to the Magic, as we enjoy our third year of bringing you the very best in audio experiences from throughout the world of Disney. A Window to the Magic can be reached in the following ways. Our email address for questions, comments, contest entries, and suggestions is podcast at windowtothemagic.com. The the windowtothemagic.com telephone hotline is 206-984-9886. That's 206-984-WTTM for Window to the Magic. Make sure to pay a visit to our message boards at WTTMforums.com and join the Window to the Magic team and our listeners as we discuss, well, pretty much everything. We appreciate your feedback, so be sure to call in or write us soon and share your thoughts with us. Be sure to tune in next week when, I don't know, Paul rises from the grave and comes up with another show. This has been A Window to the Magic, episode 119. Happy Halloween, and I'll see you next time.
1: Are you a fan of Orlando attractions and theme parks? Do you miss the old Disney magazine? Hi, I'm Ricky Briganti, host of the Inside the Magic podcast, and I'd like to tell you about Orlando Attractions Magazine. It's a new magazine that covers all of the theme parks and attractions in Orlando, including all of the Walt Disney World theme parks. Universal Studios, Islands of Adventure, and SeaWorld. Each issue of the magazine will give you restaurant and resort reports, in-depth features on your favorite rides, photo spreads including what's new and what you may have missed, and much more. If you love Disney theme parks and all the attractions that Orlando has to offer, subscribe today at attractionsmagazine.com. Every other month, a new issue will arrive in your mailbox, and I'm sure you'll spend hours looking at it page after page of exciting news, interesting articles, original cartoons, puzzles, and spectacular color photos. So to subscribe today, just fill out the order form over at attractionsmagazine.com.